we had a very good evening uh, last night, and it's such a pleasure to see so many of you here back. <clears throat> we had several um, handouts that we had given to people. Uh, the prop proposition is that I will come once a month to teach. And the handouts that I distributed yesterday, or that my colleagues distributed, uh, should be taken as homework um, between now and the next meeting. So if you did not get this, this material last night, please make sure you do. There were several left over. Um, this, this material should be read. The format we will use will be uh, to work out of the book on one foot, uh, which was composed uh, and, and edited at the University of Judaism in California. Even though the University of Judaism is a conservative institution, this book is a uh, this book is not denominational. It is um, a thorough exposition of Judaism, probably one of the be best books that I have found. So please do make sure you get this material and get a chance to read through it. Now the assignment it. Once you read through the material, and it will also be the assignment for every class, is to read uh, in, from the book three chapters and to come back with three good questions that we can deliberate on uh, in our classes. Um, I want you to come up with the most difficult questions that you can, uh, that you really demand answers for. Remember Hashem, Nakadosh Baruch Hu, uh, gave you a critical mind, and you must use it. You must at every, at every instance when you hear something, ask, what's the authority for that? Not just say, well, I accept it because a man must know what he's talking about. He's authoritative. No. You have a critical mind given to you by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, doesn't be He. It is your responsibility to, to use this critical mind at every step, every instance, you must challenge. What's the authority for that? It's not going to do for him. Well, I read it X, Y, Z. No. You have to ask him, what's the authority that you found in that book? What's the authority for the author to make those assertions? And keep tracing it back very much in the line of um, the history of thought uh, to Get back to what is the authoritative statement for that. And remember this, post-biblical literature, such as the Mishnah, the Talmud, uh, the uh, literature of the Geonim, the, the scholars after the Talmud, all the way up to now, uh, is post-biblical literature. Now, it's valid if it, uh, particularly if it attaches to a verse, a pasuk, um, that is what the Midrash is. It is an exposition of the, the verses, and it fills in gaps uh, with, with good guesses as to what really was going on or what might have gone on. Uh, and then the other uh, branch of that literature is called Agadah. The Agadot are legends, but the tradition in, um, in the Torah Shiva and in the uh, oral, uh, long, uh, is that you may not found a, uh, a, a law, an enactment, um, a rabbinical ordinance on an Agadah. You must go back to the original. Um, 
and even if you go back to uh, preceding sages, they go back to the original. If you read through the Talmud, at every step, they're, they're quoting. They knew the, the Tanakh so well. And everything that they said, well, this is maybe, this is the way this is, because it is written. And they would quote um, from the Tanakh. However, the Mishnah has no reference. The Mishnah is the first codification of the, what came to be called the Torah Shema the oral uh, Torah. Uh, and in the New Testament, it's called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders uh, is, uh, that term is still used among uh, um, many Jews, particularly North African Jews. I don't know particularly, but among North African, for example, Moroccan Jews. And it, it does, it's a uh, reference to the codification in the Mishnah. But the Mishnah has no reference. It just is not, it does not refer back to a Pasuk, a verse in the Tanakh. It's simply a, um, an anthology of um, interpretations from the various schools that were studying the, the Tanakh. Um, their ideas about how this particular verse should be interpreted, etc., were drawn together by Yehuda Nasi, in English, Judah the Prince, um, into a, uh, a collection of literature called the Midrash, now we call the Mishnah. Okay, with these um, basic explanations, we're going to discuss today a, uh, a tradition which goes far back, and I'll explain as we move along. Uh, there are four levels of interpretation of a biblical text, and the tradition is that there are shivim panim la Torah, which is to say there are 70 aspects of a, a pasuk or a passage, and they may be in direct conflict with one another. Not like you have to have a, a sentence like, well, the Pope says that that's in, and, and that's infallible. No. The rabbis were constantly wrestling. There is an Agadah that Moshe Rabbeinu before HaKadosh Baruch Hu that Hashem showed him 47 different ways to decide that something is permitted, and then 47 different ways to show how it's forbidden. So Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, said, well, what? What's the real answer? And Hashem responded, that is up to the sages of each generation to decide. So, again, you want to constantly use your critical mind to wrestle with any issue that comes up and not take something just because somebody authoritative said it, but where does it come from? The bottom line authority is going to be the Tanakh. Um, and that comes from, it's not just uh, Torah Moshe, the uh, teachings of, uh, that we have in the Pentateuch, but from the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, even uh, in um, Kohelet, the writings, Ketuvim. Now, I began to say there are four levels of interpretation. <coughs> They spell out the word pardes, which means paradise. The first is 
shot, the um, literal reading of a of a verse, and uh, the the guiding principle is in pasuk yotzei There is no verse that leaves um, its original literary meaning. So it will always be there, the literary meaning, even though it, it's expounded in other ways. Now we move down, and, and Peshat is, um, Peshat is actually the, the only reading that is available in any translation, such as in English or, or Greek or Latin, uh, St. Jerome's Vulgata. Uh, it, it can only convey the Peshat the literal meaning. And that's why Christians, for example, miss so much. It's not only that, but every word in the, that you will come to learn in the Hebrew language will open up a panorama of reality that you would not have suspected. For example, there is a constant interplay between adjectives and verbs in Hebrew. An adjective uh, is very much, in great, the great percentage of the times, a verb form. Let me, let me um, illustrate that. In, in, in Breshit, in Genesis, we have the grass growing. <clears throat> but in, in Hebrew, it's Tanshihadeshe, um, which says, like, it, it would translates the grass grassing, because that what, that's what grass does, it grasses. Okay, or even if we have the colors such as shahor, uh, black, it's just an adjective in English or Spanish. But in Hebrew, it's a verb form. It's the same form as in yachol, which means can, such as an yachol, lasbir. I can explain. Okay, so shahor or any of the colors really mean it blackens. So it says, now we can understand what that really means. It's like when the, when the electromagnetic um, vibrations hit a particular density, of, uh, then it reflects off. Um, it blackens, for example, when it comes to our retina and then is transmitted through the optic nerve to the brain. We see something uh, and we say, well, it's... Um, it is actually doing what it says, even to the point that <clears throat> Baruch Spinoza, a great uh, philosopher of uh, Portuguese Jewish descent, coined the phrase God Godding, going about the business of Godding. So that the highest of theological subjects are actually the sciences. There are those who say, well, no, we are, we've got one kind of thinking, it's religious thinking, another kind is scientific thinking. No, not in Hebrew, the, because it's through the sciences that you can watch God guiding. Um, so every, every word every, that you can learn in Hebrew is going to give you a, a, an insight into reality that is different from English. Keep in mind, uh, English, or not English, Spanish, all Indo-European languages um, are static. They're static. They, 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 it's like X equals Y. 
equals z. But in Hebrew, we don't set up that formula. It's x does y does z. So that if a person does something at one time, it doesn't lock him into that. He did it then. But the next time, he has the ethical choice to do it another way. Think of, um, think of life, think of reality, metaphorically, like a honeycomb. In every, in every juncture, it goes in two directions. So we say that you can make a correct ethical decision and, um, and follow through with a commandment, mitzvah, and we can say mitzvah then. Mitzvah, one leads to another. One right decision leads to another right decision leads to a right decision. That is to say, mitzvah, goreret mitzvah, a mitzvah brings about another mitzvah. But on the other hand, if you turn and make a wrong decision, and that's called a transgression, avera, we have avera, avera, one transgression will lead to another transgression, lead to another transgression. But at any given nanosecond, you have the ethical choice to turn, to make the right decision, and one right decision will lead to another right decision, to another right decision. <clears throat> so, this, um, you must keep this in mind in your daily life. You're not, in Hebrew, it's a, a, a dynamic language. Everything is dynamic. And as you learn Hebrew, word by word, phrase by phrase, you will gain a panorama of reality that you never expected. For example, in Biblical Hebrew, we would not have a formula such as he is gay, locking the person identity into that. We say, well, he, he did gay, but the next moment he has an ethical option. He can choose to not to, it's his ethical decision. And, and from the Birke Avot, that's a tractate of um, Talmud, we have <coughs> which is to say everything is in the hands of heaven except ethical choice. Mm. The literal reading is except the fear of heaven. But keep in mind the fear of heaven or the fear of God is an idiom for ethical decision. The asmachta, uh, the proof text for this is, uh, for example, when um, I asked Abraham, why did you tell me that Sarah was your sister? You could have brought down destruction on me and my family. And Abraham Avinu answers, well, I was afraid there was no fear of God in this place. That's a translation. But what do you mean? Look, he's surrounded with idols in this place. So what is he saying, no fear of God, when you've got all these idols of the Canaanite um, pantheon? He's using that expression, that idiom, there's no fear of God in this place, to say there's no ethical consciousness in this place. They, people didn't know right from wrong in this place. That phrase, fear of God, really doesn't mean what, what we say in English in the translation. It really means ethical decision, which is to say then, all is in the hands of heaven except ethical decision. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to go into something. We're talking Kabbalah now. And by the way, the old word for Kabbalah is 
particularly after the writings of Vital uh, and was a disciple of Risakluria. Um, uh, so this is a class of, uh, of uh, the introduction to Kabbalah. Mm. <coughs> when we say, and for those of you who were here last night, please bear with it as I repeat it. Remember, by the way, it's not the tsunami, the uh, tidal wave that breaks the rock, but the constant drip, drip, drip that pierces the rock, the constant repetition. And remember that the unconscious mind needs repetition before it can install a new pattern of thought. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> that's all in the hands of heaven. Modern physics, particularly now quantum physics, really, in, to a great degree, seems to be catching up with intuitive insight that people with an, an intelligence of Einstein at times saw. And we ask, for example, how did they know these things? And in every instance, what we receive as an answer is, well, they knew through Ruach HaKodesh. Now let me explain Ruach HaKodesh and then we'll proceed with what I'm saying. Uh, you think of a wind, uh, and you know we've got various forms of wind like um, like out in the trees, the wind. You can have a cosmic wind, an ionic uh, sea, and it just, it's a constant, it's a pattern that we call a wave. from the University of Montreal, but I can tell you I have studied over 137 languages, and in none of the languages that I have studied is there a lexical component, a vocabulary, for expressing other than third-dimensional reality, third-dimensional phenomena, third-dimensional uh, experience. But Hebrew does. As a matter of fact, the word that is used for other than third dimensional experience is Kodesh. Kodesh is translated into English holiness, but it does not mean goody goody two shoes. It means an event, like if I may use the word, a parapsychological event or a phenomenon that occurs in third-dimensional life. And that's the meaning of Kodesh. And we say, Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sivod, Melokola, Aretz, Kivodom. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is filled with his glory. Uh, it really means it's not third dimensional. It's not uh, what you see is what you get. It is so much other than that. So the adjective derivative of um, Kodesh has the same form, it's Kadosh, has the same form, even though it's an adjective in English, has the same form as um, Yachor, Ken, or use the example Shachor. It's a, it, that adjective is a verb. And it describes God's godding in a, in, a, in a way that is inexplicable from simple third dimensional what you get, what you see is what you get experience. So the word Kodesh in Hebrew means experience other, other than third dimensional experience. Now if you can imagine a wind that wafts through men's lives, that can touch an individual and, and give them an insight, if I can use the word again, a parapsychological insight into uh, a reality that's beyond the third dimensional. If we can imagine a wind that blows through, that is Kodesh, Kodesh, other than third dimensional, we get a wind of, well, we can use the word otherness, a wind of otherness that blows through a man's, a woman's life, insight, intuition. So we say a woman's intuition is strong. Well, yes, we're saying that the Ruha Kodesh is, is, more, is, uh, is more present in a woman's life. We even say that a woman is endowed with a higher measure of uh, a bina, of insight, than a man. A woman's intuition is very much a, a, an aspect of Ruach HaKodesh. So Ruach HaKodesh, this wind of otherness, is what is translated into English, the Holy Ghost. <laughs> That's so far out in left field from what the Hebrew concept is. But it just illustrates the problem of just dealing with Peshat, the surface, uh, surface reading of a verse. So we look and say, well, how did the um, how did the Hazal, uh, the sages, may their memory be for a blessing? How did they how did they know these things? The answer is through Ruach Hakodesh, through this wind of otherness. Hebrew has a specific lexical component that just, that talks about aspects of other than third dimensional experience. Rohanevu'ah, uh, we can translate it, the spirit of prophecy, it really refers to this kind of um, event. So the sages gained these insights which physics, quantum physics, are only now catching up to. And we may ask, how did they know? Well, it was through HaKodesh, the wind of otherness that they knew. It was other than a third dimensional event. So, <clears throat> when we have the phrase, HaKol Bidei Shamayim, all is in the hands of heaven, let's understand what that is saying. 
again, this is drawing on last night where we discussed Kabbalah throughout the evening of the presentation. Hashem can have nothing that it limits him. There are no boundaries. If, if something could limit Hashem, Hashem wouldn't be God, but what had the power to limit Hashem would be God. And we would keep tracing that back to an original moment, an original first cause. There can be no limitation of God. Not time, not space. We think limitation, we're talking about space. No. It means time or space, no limitation to God. <clears throat> then we come to realize in our third dimensional plane of existence, we actually have an illusion which we call time. We think past, and present, future. But beyond this third dimension, there is no time. God has no time. It's an ongoing, continuous, coexisting now. So in the past we when we say in every generation a man must see himself, a person must see himself as they went forth from Egypt. It is because at this very nanosecond that's happening. If we talk about the Big Bang, it means at this very nanosecond it's happening. There is no time. It's all a continuous coexisting now. Then when we think of the billions of years through which Hashim brought, radiated out existence um, and created this, the stars, the stardust, the, the um, galaxies, the you know, anything. It took all this time, etc., billions of years. No, it's now at this nanosecond from the perspective outside the third dimensional illusion of time. There's no time, nothing limits Hashem. So then, if the stardust was brought into existence, we would say billions of years ago, but for Hashem at this nanosecond, at this nanosecond also, all future events are occurring as well. Then uh, we see that just as the stardust, everything was brought into existence, also, at this very nanosecond, everything is brought into existence. So that we really can't understand what the sages meant by Hakorim Bindeshamayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Even this nanosecond, everything in it you see and experience happened back then. And in the future, let me show you what uh, you know, this is reading. Uh, I'm taking this from uh, Kohelet, uh, which is uh, Ecclesiastes. And I just want to read a couple of psukim here, and we'll return to it later in the discussion of Kabbalah. But um, let's understand what, what I just said and the way it's referenced uh, in uh, Kohelet. Mm. Turn, turn, turn. 
table of contents open for me. <coughs> Always in the hands of heaven, even this moment. Mm -hmm. Let's do it at the little corner up here. Mm. Excuse me. Well, it doesn't look like there is one. But there's going to be this one. He goes down to. Hold the paper up when you see through it. Is that the first volume? Yeah, there's only yeah, one. Yeah, there's only one page. Oh wow! Interesting. Can't be. <coughs> I read. I read from it last night. No, you read from the Tanakh. Well, this is this is a Tanakh. No, this is Rashi. Oh, what am yeah, I looking yeah, at? Yeah, that's Rashi. That. Yeah, that explains it. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, so you see this. Um, I didn't think that I would re read this, but uh, this particular portion, that's why it's spontaneous now. But it, it, we need to bring it in so that you see this and understand it. this. I'm just going to read the Peshat down to the verse that I intend to, to refer to. <clears throat> all such things are where I'm jumping into it. All such things are where some no man can ever state them. The eye never has enough of seeing or the ear enough of hearing. Only that shall happen which has happened. Only that occur which has occurred. There is nothing new beneath the sun, which is to say there's no past and no present for Hashem. Everything, only what will happen has already happened at this nanosecond. Just as the past is, has happened, is happening at this nanosecond. Okay. So, Hakol Bidei means that everything is happening at this moment and is set in place by Hashem just as we perceive uh, the creation of, uh, of the cosmos. Everything that happens, there's no accident. Everything is there, except for some reason, Hashem endowed human beings with the ability to make an ethical decision. We call it <coughs> we call it in Hebrew mechira chosid, which means really free choosing. English translation or the English usage is free will. 
But there's no free will. If there's free will, you can step outside and just, poof, be in Jerusalem, because that's your will. We have no free will. At any nanosecond, we only have a finite number of possibilities. That is, and we have the capacity to make that ethical decision. In every instance, when you analyze the finite number of possibilities, you find that there are two general categories. Either the decisions will bring you closer to God, or they will distance you. And one decision to distance leads to another decision to distance until that next nanosecond that you decide, no, I want to be closer to God. I will choose the correct, the right ethical choice, ethical decision. I call it B'desha Mayim, all is in the hands of heaven. Except the fear of heaven, ethical choice. Now, um, when we're at this juncture, let me dive into something a little deeper. And in order to do it, we have to go into quantum. But it's a, very much a part of um, the esoteric tradition of Chokhmanistara, um, hidden wisdom. I'm going to make a, uh, a challenging statement for you. I want you to use your critical mind. There is no past, there is no future, and there is no now. So let's understand this. From the moment that you're conceived, even in the womb, in utero, the fetus is able to understand, pick up. They know, they, they begin to feel music. They like classical, and they get jumpy when it's um, heavy metal. Then they get acquainted with their mother's voice and what's happening in the mother's world even before they're born. And, and then after they're born, studies indicate that every moment there are 200,000 bits of information, bytes it's called from the computer language, of information that the senses perceive and take in every second 200,000. We're talking about auditory perception, visual perception, gustatory perception, all of the senses. 200,000. This is, think of it this way. Let's say that you have a, you want to have a meal. So you sit down, you need a plate, a glass, a spoon and fork, but your cabinets are absolutely stocked full of utensils and pots and pans and everything, but you don't need them for that meal. For any given meal, you just draw out what you need. That is a nice metaphor for understanding this. The unconscious mind um, stores all of this information, this data, but we only pull out pieces of it that we need at a given moment. Remember, the conscious mind uh, developed, the 20% the of the conscious mind developed in order to solve problems, um, strategize. How am I going to go? Where am I, you know, where, uh, where's the next animal out there that I can club and drag into the cave? Okay. And to this moment, the conscious mind functions trying to solve problems. Well, what am I going to do this next week? You know, what am I going to do? You know, I've got a problem that's all words, words, words in the conscious mind. Words are um, thoughts uh, that we express in verbal behavior. 
But the unconscious mind works in symbols, it's symbolic. Okay. Now, of these 200,000 bits of information every second that you have drawn, drawn in, you fashion, there are layers of uh, perception. You fashion uh, what is often in, in some circles called a map of the world. And your map of the world, or perception of reality, is never the same as another person's. Because based on their experiences, they're filtering in a new experience. That's why we have the stereotypical story of a, an automobile accident and making out the police reports. There's seven different, seven different people observed it, seven people with different reports, and every one of them is, no, that is what happened. That's the way they perceived it and integrated and filtered it that they can give them an, an explanation of what happened. And there is never the truth. Say, event A happens, okay? We become aware that event A happens. We see it, we take it in. That's event B. We try to make sense of what event B took in. That's event C. And then we report it to someone else, event D. At that point, we can make two kinds of decisions. One, to report exactly what you can remember that event C made sense of, out of, in event B. But event A is long gone. It's not a, it's, the truth is event A. But when we get to, to D, we can decide, I'm going to report exactly what I can, and that's only your interpretation in event C. Or event C. Or you can say, no, I've got a vested interest in this. And I, if I tell this person X, Y, Z, then I can shape their thinking to conform with mine, and we call that a lie. Mm -hmm. But event A, the truth, we never really get to. All we get to is C, which made sense out of B, our perception of it. So, from these 200,000 bits of information, at this moment, we string together a storyline, selecting little bits here and there, to string together into a storyline that meets a particular need that we have at this moment, or that makes sense to us. But perceptions of uh, 200,000 since you emerged from the womb, think about it. There's an infinity of possible storylines that can be strung together. All of them reporting on what we would call the past. There is not a past, there are only, there's only your storyline that you decide to, to pull together because you need to. There's no past. There's an infinity of pasts possible. <clears throat> now the future. Think about it. Quantum physics shows that there's real, really no future, no definitive point. What there is, is a, um, an infinity of waves of probability that come to us. And these waves of probability, you may start out saying, well, what's the wave of highest probability? That's the one that's most likely going to be the future. But no, 
it is it is modified and shaped at every moment by ethical choice. Not only your ethical choice, but the ethical choices that everybody else is out there making. It shed, there's an infinity of, of waves of possibility, of waves of probability. You may have a, a goal that you have, and your ethical choice is to shape everything you can to reach that goal. But that's not to say that, that you can, because there may be other events from people's other people around you and their ethical choices. So there's really no future, there's an infinity of futures out there possible from the waves of probability that are constantly coming into you, into what we call now. So there's no past, there's no future. So many years ago, maybe, maybe 40 years ago, the psychology department of, uh, the, of the Chicago, University of Chicago pulled in some volunteer students, hypnotized them, and brought them out with uh, of hypnosis, the post-hypnotic suggestion that there's no, there's no future, only past and present. And they were so enthusiastic, so giddy, no problems, but there was no future to worry about. And put them back under and said, this time when the post-hypnotic suggestion and they emerged, they told them there's no past. And they brought them out and they were absolutely terrified because they had nothing to draw on for all the possibilities and that they were confronting. They put them under again. They said, okay, now there's no past and there's no future. There's only now, the present. And they could not bring them out of hypnosis. So they put them under again and said, okay, there's past, present, future, just like you it was before we began this experiment. And the conclusion they had to deduce was that there's no now. But consider it. When I say now, before I can look at it again, now is past, it's no longer now. Now, 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 now there's no now that we can pass it on to. There's no past, there's no present, there's no, I mean, there's no past, no future, no now, no present. So what, what is it? What's going on here? Okay. Voltaire said, je pense donc je suis, I think, therefore I am. It was a wrong conclusion. All he can say is, I think, therefore, there must be thoughts. There must be I think, therefore, there must be thoughts. Okay. So we do have these thoughts, etc. And we do have these events of uh, ethical decision. But when it comes down to it, we understand the wisdom, the intuition of the sages when they said, everything is in the hands of heaven except ethical choice. You determine to a great extent you plot out your future. Are you going to make more money? Are you going to, whatever, are you going to be more successful in social life? You plot out and hold to it with your ethical decisions, and there's a high likelihood that you will arrive there, you'll achieve it. But what you need to do is, is say, okay, so what are the steps that need to be taken 
in order to achieve that goal. And then once you have them in your, in your mind, or write them down, take each step and say, okay, what has to happen before this step can be achieved? And jot those down. And then with your ethical decisions, go about structuring your future, or at least a good probability that it will be your future. So we understand what the sages meant when they said, all is in the hands of heaven, except the fear of heaven. Okay, now, let's return to our original thesis. Okay. We have four levels of interpretation of, um, of any given passage. One of them is pshat, the literal meaning. That's all that comes across in a translation. And then there's, uh, the second is remes, which is what illusions, allusions can we derive from what's being said. The third is darosh, which is to say, how can we apply this to our idea of morality, ethical morality. And the fourth is sod, which is the Hebrew word for secret. So they spell out the word pardes. Pshat, remes, darosh, sod. Our proposition is to introduce you to the level of sod, uh, secret, which is the level of chokhmah nistara, hidden wisdom, Kabbalah. There's a, a tremendous amount of misinformation about Kabbalah, so much so that I call it like based on the, on the, the uh, New Age community north of San Francisco called Marin County. And I, I call it all these ideas and things Marin County Pop Kabbalah. Okay. And Madonna, which is that, well, my religion is Kabbalah, it's not Judaism. It's this, it's this messed up idea of Kabbalah that's available in English. Let me give you an example of what's going on with these translations into English, because it's sometimes just astounding. When the Turks conquered uh, the capital of the Byzantium Empire, Constantinople, named for Constantinos, um, the, it was in uh, 1483, the scholars of Byzantium, the, the Greek-speaking, Greek Orthodox Church scholars had never lost touch with uh, Greek philosophy, Greek learning. They took refuge in the West, in Italy, around the Vatican. The Vatican welcomed them. And they taught Greek to uh, the Latin scholars and used Latin as the uh, literary language. At that time, remember, there, there, there really was only the rudimentary development of uh, what became into uh, European languages. Everyone used Latin if they were in, in scholarly discourse. So they taught Latin scholars uh, Greek uh, wisdom. And not only of the interpretations of the New Testament that are prevalent in the Greek Orthodox Church, and, and the Greek Orthodox Church held on for a long time to ideas of Marcionism, which you can Google if you want to, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, 
uh, who was agnostic, um, and his ideas might have originally be, might have become the predominant Christian idea, uh, but he was declared a heretic, and then his adherents were were um, banned. But uh, so much of uh, Marcionism, not, not much, but enough, is in Greek Orthodox Christianity till this day. But the Greek scholars taught Latin scholars Greek. And the Latin scholars began to say, well, wait a second. We had an antiquity, Roman philosophers and, and plays and dramas, and they looked back. And they began a process that, uh, of rebirth of Latin learning. We call it the Renaissance. But it didn't take long before they said, well, now wait a second. The inscription in the over the, over the, on the cross was in three languages. The third language was Hebrew. It was in Greek, it was in Latin, and it was in Hebrew. Hebrew must be a third classical language. We need to learn Hebrew. So they went to Italian rabbis to learn Hebrew. This is over a long period of time, not just uh, overnight. And created what's called the, the movement of Christian Hebraists, that is Christians who cultivated Hebrew. And this is where so much of this um, misunderstanding of Kabbalah really originates. I'll give an example of their interpretations. First two words in, um, in Genesis and Breshit are Breshit bara. In the beginning created bara. And they took bara and said, well, you see, that's a, that tells us that that's really what it's saying is, it's an abbreviation, bara bet resh. And uh, that is to say that it means, it means sun, it means the resh is spirit, and the finally that, that's gone. There was a three in one already in Breshit. That's a typical kind of thing that went on, and massively. So all of this distills down through occult ideas and um, New Age ideas. And when you say, when you see Kabbalah, or you have a, a lecture by a master of Kabbalah, that's the time to burp and back away. <laughs> because you must suspect it. It's coming out of this, this, this misunderstanding. This, because people are constantly filtering through their layers of, ex of, of perception of reality. <laughs> it's, it's to be expected, it's human nature. That's why you need a teacher to sit with you and teach you uh, Kabbalah can explain things. And that's what I'm going to do a little today. Okay. Now, Rashi, from the beginning, says, let me show you. We've got a collection of Russia. He's, he's one of the uh, greatest, uh, the, probably the greatest commentators, not only on the Tanakh, but on everything. The Talmud, he was a brilliant man analyzing and putting it together. But he didn't, he did not innovate. He simply drew out from the sources that he had inherited of the, of the biblical and post-biblical literature. But from the beginning, he says, well, it says, in the beginning, beginning of, 
Uh, Rabbi Yitzhak said, God need not, need not have begun the Torah, but from this month shall be for you in Exodus, the beginning of months, okay? Because it is the first commandment which Israel was commanded. So what is the reason he began with the book of Genesis? Because he wished to convey the message of the words, the power of his acts he told to his people. Now, he goes on to explain um, that mm, all of these concepts, let there be light, for example, uh, can under, be understood today as the electromagnetic spectrum that radiated out from God. And you know that it's not just light, but it's everything in this frequency of um, radiation. Yeah. And we are at a lower frequency than, than air, what have you. And there are frequencies that are lower than us, such as stones, what we call inanimate. So, let there be light can be understood as the radiation out of, of this uh, electromagnetic spectrum. Okay. It goes in, the verse does not come to teach the order of creation. It's not chronological, he's saying. Don't take it to be in the literal, don't take it to, to literally mean this is what happened and this and it's not, it's not chronological. Now follow this. This guy's writing in the 1300s, the greatest commentator. Okay. The verse does not come to teach the order of creation by saying that the heavens and the earth came first. For if this is what it came to teach us, it should have written, at first he created the heavens. For you have no instance of the word reshit, that means um, beginning in scripture, that is not attached. It has to be in the beginning of. That today we can say in the beginning of the time space continuum, and it makes good sense. And we'll come to see that heavens it very much can be understood as a metaphor for dimensions, and the earth as a metaphor for third dimension, here and now. Okay. So it follows, so he gives examples of that. If you say uh, that the phrase comes to teach us that these, the heavens and earth, were created first at the very beginning of creation, and its meaning is at the beginning of everything, he created these, the heavens and the earth. And this would not be a, a forced reading of the verse, for you have verses, etc. And he gives examples. Um, and then he says, But it did not specify from the beginning of a thing, he tells the end of a thing. If this were so, if you were to propose the above explanation that our verse teaches the order of creation, you should be perplexed by yourself. He, his generation is saying, think, use your critical mind, analyze, think it through. If this verse were so, if you were to propose the above explanation that our verse teaches the order of creation, you should be perplexed by yourself. For the waters preceded the heavens and the earth. For see now that it is written, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the, over the surface of the waters. And scripture has not 
and scripture has, has not yet revealed at that point when the creation of the waters took place. See now that you have learned that the water preceded the earth. And furthermore, we say that water was created before the heavens. Shamaim uh, and um, and Me'esh, uh, that is to say that it's understood that the heavens are like, are like, uh, they're ephemeral, like fire. And Mayim is water. But together, the chronological order of what came earlier and what came later at all, God's in God's creation. It does not say Hashem's creating because at first it rose in thought, i.e. God considered, so to speak, to create it with the attribute of strict judgment. He holds everything in place. Okay. But he saw that the word could not last, world could not last if he did. So, we don't look at this as um, we're already we're, we're taught by Rashi to go beneath the pshat, go beneath the literal, to to richly get to finally get to an insight by reading between the lines. So I'm going to reread the translation of this, and I'm going into Kabbalah for this. That is to say, now this is where you want to use metaphorical thinking to get to a deeper level of understanding. In the beginning of the time-space continuum, God created the dimensions and the cosmos, the third dimension. And uh, the cosmos, uh, no, the, everything was darkness, and then light, electromagnetic spectrum, radiated forth. The idea that um, the term that is used is merahefet. Well, I can't. Uh, I wish you guys knew more Hebrew to explain it, but it it, it means radiated out existence. Okay and has the same three constants in a different order, what we call Timurot HaOtiot, as Ruach and as Or. Ruach is spirit, Or is light. So that from this point forward, we have existence radiating out from Hashem. This whole first chapter, is, it's called Ma'ase Brishit, in Kabbalah is uh, incredibly insightful, but to teach it to you, I would need to, uh, you would need to, to learn so much more Hebrew. But I will show you this. Um, we start out with Shemaim and Aretz, that is the heavens and earth. That's macro and micro. Then in the second chapter, we have the heaven and earth were finished in all their array. Again, heaven and earth, macro, micro. So, and, and on, the, on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he seized on the seventh day from all the work that he had done, and God blessed them the seventh day and declared it holy, etc. Now, I can go on and down to this. When the Lord God made 
earth and heaven. Such is the story of the heaven and earth when they were created. Okay, that's the end of the first paragraph. It begins, when the Lord God made earth and heaven, where no shrub of the field was yet on the earth. Now we're looking now at micro and macro. There's no longer heaven and earth, it's earth and heaven. From this point on, we're looking at earth, the planet. But it tells us there was no shrub of the field. We did all this in the first chapter, which has very deep mystical meanings. We know the plants and animals and everything were brought forth. And it's saying here, no shrub of the field was yet on earth. Because now we're talking about the planet. And no grasses of the field had yet sprouted. Because the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. Water, living water, is, a, is always... A, a poetic expression of the Spirit. So at that point, God had not yet spent, sent the Ruach, the Spirit that sparks life, Nishmar Hai, the spark of life, had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man. Remember the word Adam from Adama, man from earth. It, it is referring there was to humanity. The word for man is Ish. Was, but humanity was not yet there upon the earth. There was no man to till the soil. Now catch this. But a flow, and this is a translation of the, um, this uh, Jewish, what is it? Um, Jewish Publication Society, bilingual. Okay, uh, but it said, um, no man to till the soil, but a flow would well up from the ground and water in the spirit of life the whole surface of the earth. We're talking about a soupy mess covering the planet from which life developed and emerged. This chapter, this um, chapter, this, these verses, between these two verses, between the lines, gives you an insight into the whole process of evolution. From the soupy mess, emerged life. That's what it tells us. There was a, but a flow would well up from the ground and water the whole surface of the earth. Water again, spirit of life. Okay. Now the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Okay. Now, you know, let me just pause a second and give you one, since we're here, another um, insight. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a fitting helper for him. And the Lord God formed, now, let me get back to this. Yeah, uh, the Lord God formed out of the earth, all the wild beasts, all the birds of the sky, and brought them to the man. Okay, now. God created, see, the verse says God created uh, man. Male and female created he them. Now catch that, that's in one sentence here. And it, it's referring to the fact that, uh, that God created man, male and female. Think of the yin-yang in Chinese tradition, okay? In every soul, there's a male and a female component. 
God created man, male and female created he them. When there's conception, the male half goes into a male child, female into a female child. The two halves search each other throughout life until they find one another again and become one flesh, one being again between them. This is the notion of a um, soulmate. And then notice we've got this in the first chapter, but it's not until the second chapter that Eve is created. Why? Then we're talking about a female human being or the symbol of um, femininity. But it really goes back to the first, this first um, idea that, uh, that God had created male, created, and God created man, male and female created he them. Okay, now, we're now moving, you're saying that we're moving from the Peshat, the literal translation, through the levels down to Sod, the secret. Uh, you have to read deeply and have someone who can sit with you patiently and show you and teach you, because you can soar into the ionosphere. Like this, I give you this Christian Hebraist and Madonna's Kabbalah. Madonna's Kabbalah is really, uh, they're, they're, they're not just, they're not drawing on Chokhmah, Mistara, but in the interpretations of the teachings of uh, Isaac Gloria. Uh, Isaac Gloria died in, um, in uh, 1678, no, 1578, okay, was an Ashkenazic Jew who uh, was born and raised in the Ashkenazic community, refugee community in Fostad, a suburb, Jewish suburb of Cairo. And when he went to Israel, he only taught three years. And in those three years, his teaching was so bombastic, he just blasted everyone out of the water in their ideas. He introduced uh, a kind of uh, mythology back into Judaism. Now keep in mind that uh, Jewish thought always rejected mythology. Where the other, where the other uh, nations surrounding them worshipped natural phenomena, like the God of Thunder or what have you, from the beginning, Israel recognized that history itself was sacred. The abstraction of the history is sacred. Because history shows an ongoing interaction between God and man. So that record itself is sacred. History is sacred. But Arizal, Isakluria, reintroduced an entire cosmogony, uh, an explanation of how the earth came about. That's, and it's what we call Lurianic Kabbalah. Has an, uh, maybe you've seen it, um, a diagram with various uh, Sevirot coming down to Malchut, which represents this, this planet. That's not the way, in the old system, before Arizal, it was, it was um, put into concentric circles, which really makes better sense in terms of our understanding of quantum now that it all coexists now, here, other realities other densities of the frequency all are coexisting here now. There's not some kind of up and down. Ask yourself, if there's no limitation of God, 
is there an up or a down? Or we perceive up down. No, God. God is everything. God is everything. You want to know where the center of God is? It's in you, your heart. So let's pause a second to consider something. I said God is everything. God, there's a word that is historically and always taken to mean the name of God. And it's so special that no one pronounces it. And uh, very few people, very, very few people in the world or in Israel know how to pronounce it. I do. But I don't. I don't pronounce it. I know how to pronounce it, but I don't pronounce it. But the, the most important thing is to understand what that word means. The meaning of the name, not the pronunciation. But let's pause a second and discuss that. There are there are four letters that we call in Greek tetris four. It's related to the Spanish word quatum. Tetra grammaton, the four letters. Okay. In Hebrew, we call it Shema Meforash, the name that is the expounded name because everything that comes out from it. Now, if you know Spanish, I'm, I'm going to ask you to think in terms of the past tense. Uh, and you, we have two verbs, uh, two forms of a verb. Uh, one describes um, an encapsulated action. And another describes an open action, such as, I gave the example before, <clears throat> if you take a glass and you drop the glass, the action of dropping the glass began and ended at the same time. The glass broke, the action began and ended at the same time. Now, we can perceive this encapsulation in larger categories than just momentarily in Spanish, and, and we use that verb form, which is called preterito in Spanish, the preterite, versus an ongoing, uh, an ongoing uh, action. For example, uh, he was painting the fence. We don't indicate when he began painting or when he ended painting. So Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, only had what these are called aspects. These aspects of completed action versus open, ongoing action but didn't have past, present, and future. It only had these two aspects and determined past, present, and future by the use of, with the use of adverbs like yesterday, today, tomorrow. And I use the example of uh, put. Verb form doesn't change. I put it now, put it yesterday. Tomorrow and every day after that at that time, I put it on the table. Put doesn't change. It's the adverb that determines the time. Okay? Now, I want you to think of an ongoing open-ended action that is not determined by time. No adverb with it, just the action, ongoing action. The root, the three consonants that constitute that name of God are the, are the meaning, are the consonants of the, the concept of exist, existing. 
it is existing without indicating when it began or when it will end. It's just ongoing. And so when Moses stands before the burning bush and says, who shall I say sent me? And we get in Hebrew, and translated, I will be, no, I am that I am. What, what the answer really means is, I am sheer existence itself. I am existence. So everything, everything down to the ionic level, and we don't know where from there, microcosmically or macrocosmically, everything is God. And we're not just talking about Carl Sagan's cosmos. And years ago, like maybe almost 40 years ago, I had a colleague at the University of Texas in the mathematics department. And her master's thesis was mapping out the mathematical uh, attributes using the supercomputer, the mathematical attributes of the 104th dimension. We're talking about existence, all dimensions, all universes, all multiverses, the infinities of what we call the past or the future, everything, if it exists, is gone. In the nonsense question, imagine what nothingness must be like. It's absolutely absurd, because if nothingness is, it exists. There's no such thing as nothingness. All is God. Everything is God. I quote all is in the hands of God. God creates each moment, each nanosecond, at the same time that <coughs> the Big Bang, it's right now, everything is. God is Godding. So, at this point we've covered a number of different concepts that will lead you forward and give you enthusiasm, I would think, for learning uh, hidden wisdom, perceiving beyond the literal meaning into the depths, the, the, uh, not the surface structure, but the deep structure of every verse, the very passage in the Torah. Say, well, how can, you know, so many different interpretations, how can this be that and this, it contradicts or what? Remember this, God is the sum total of all paradox. If it exists, it's God. Two Jews after synagogue service, after Shahrin, <coughs> We're discussing their understanding of a particular passage. So Isaac gives his idea. Max gives his idea. They argue. They're contradictory. They say, let's take it to the rabbi. They took it to the rabbi in his study, and the rabbi listens to Isaac's interpretation. He says, you're right. And he listens to Max's interpretation. He says, you're right. And the janitor that's there says, well, they can't both be right. And he responds, you're right. 
<laughs> what is right is not the answer. What is right is the question. Because they could be arguing about anything else, some porn flick or anything. But what are they arguing about and coming up with struggles to understand? It's the question that is right. We have a tradition where two, two great scholars, Shammai and Hillel, who had, their schools had immense differences and they were often in conflict. The question comes, well, which one is right? And the response is, Eli ve'eli, elokim hayim These and these are words of the living God. Here's where you enter into it with your critical thinking. You listen to all and realize all is God. Even paradox. So let's open it up to questions or comments now. I have one. It's been killing me from the beginning. You quote, you quote, uh, I think therefore I am. Yeah. And I've contemplated that a lot. Don't it's you see, it's yeah. a delusion. And I came up with a it's phrase. It's also arrogance. It is arrogance. I came up with a phrase, I wanted to find out what you think. Hashem mm -hmm. exists, therefore I am. Is that better played out within the thought of Judaism? Or Hashem is, therefore I am. And that's a very nice way of saying it, but I would say it's even, still, it is not deep structure. Mm-mm, no. And this goes really deeply into it. Quantum physics has come up with an interesting idea. Do you know what a hologram is? Mm -hmm. That all of this is some kind of hologram. Right. Hologram is just a perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is some kind of original that the light is rebounding off of to create the hologram. Mm -hmm. So at a, at a, um, at a formal, um, conceptual level of existence or of, of life, as we call it. Yeah, God is, therefore I am. Because without God I wouldn't be, period. Right. Nothing would be. But that also implies there's got to be an original that the, that the hologram is reflecting. And it comes into uh, the concept of um, spiritual, non-third dimensional existence. And we're familiar with the term angels, but that really doesn't cut it. The Hebrew term for angel is malach, the plural malachim, and it means messenger. Something through which God gods. The laws of physics. You want to see an angel? You just saw it. God gods through that. We call it gravity. But on this other non-dimensional, on these other non-dimensional planes of existence, there are malachim, messengers. And at any given moment, there can be an, an interesting event 
that occurs. In order for something to happen, you have to be the one or the most hopeful or probable one to be successful. And a malach can penetrate. And whether you know it or not, you're bringing about a significant uh, coincidence that will surface with others to a given point. And we all know, of course, there is no coincidence. There is, there are God incidents, but not coincidence. So you may be, without realizing, you may be functioning as a messenger, as a, uh, as a prophet, without knowing what you're doing. That was the original idea about, um, you see, there was a, a school of thought uh, in, we know from, um, um, uh, we know from Josephus' writings, he speaks of three different schools of thought in Judaism of his day. He was the one who chronicled the Roman wars uh, in Israel. Um, and he described Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes. But we now know there were a number of others, maybe six, half a dozen or more, of different interpretations of, um, of Torah. Um, the Essenes are an interesting group because they, uh, that the word assay means in Aramaic to heal or a healer. And uh, the term is also, cannot, you cannot help but relate the term to therapeute, uh, therapeute. In, uh, there were mystics that lived in caves along the Nile River a hundred years before Jesus. Uh, and uh, Philo of Alexandria describes them, particularly in his book. Yale has produced a very nice uh, bilingual translation. But in his book, De, De Vita Contemplativa, on the contemplative life, he describes these mystics and how they lived. Uh, they lived in caves and studied Torah all week long, subsisted on water and crusts of bread, and got together on Shabbat where one of their great leaders, their scholars, would deliver um, a lecture. And they would spend the day in songs of praise, etc., and then at the end of Shabbat, return to their caves. They were called Terapute. That's a great, it's related to the English word therapeutic, or it's the origin of the word therapeutic, or therapy. They were healers. So this Asin, the plural is Asin, the Essenes, seem to have been perceived as healers, and very likely uh, what we would call today bioenergetic healers. That's a, that's a universal um, phenomenon. It, uh, the Chinese call it qi, and the Japanese qi. Qi gong means doing qi, and in the Japanese qi, doing doing qi is called reiki. Uh, but it's a it's a universal. Among the Filipinos, they call it gahum, and in uh, the south, in the south, the Pacific South Seas, in the Polynesia, they call it mana. Mana, mana, or the highest level, mana, mana, mana. North American Indians did it, and apparently so did the Essenes. That's why they were called healers. And there's all kinds of traditions about Jesus studying with the Essenes. 
and learning Belgian energetic healing. And bioenergetic healing wouldn't be an explanation for the reported miracles of healing that occurred. Not that it was special, it was, there were these people doing it all over the place. Okay. But they had a notion that if in your studies and your, your, your advancement in Torah, you could reach a point at which Ruach uh, HaKodesh would, would penetrate into you. And they took the verb, and they're all speaking Greek, mind you. Uh, they took a word that is used as an adjective that is used when a Greek athlete, after the games, slay, he takes a nice sauna, what have you, uh, lies down, and then a slave comes and oils him all down, and then scrapes off the oil. It's a whole process, but when he's oiled down, that's a Greek adjective. And they chose it in this Greek-speaking uh, world to describe a person that had this Ruach on them. That word is Christos. <coughs> oh, Christos. Paul is the one who said, no, there's only one. Everybody that was in the, all these guys were Christos. So actually, actually it's, I mean, just, it's not my business, but it's a misuse of the word to say Jesus Christ, as if he were the only one. Actually, as if his whole name was Jesus Christ God, and Christ is a middle name. No, because there's also a Dina Christ, or a Chaim Christ, or Shimon Christ. There's people you sense the Shekhinah, the presence of God about them. And each and every one of you that is chosen to be here today, you sense an aura of the presence of God around you. So they, they, um, it's good that I had that diversion so you kind of understood that. The essay is Greek-speaking, you said? What's that? I understood you just saying the essays were Greek-speaking. Yeah, that, that, that was the language throughout the area. Everybody, there were three languages, trilingual. It was Hebrew mm-hmm. and the spoken common idiom was Aramaic. <coughs> and then in, um, ad- administratively, the Romans used Greek. Uh, and in market, uh, negotiating with different um, um, ethnic groups, Greek was the language. Uh, give you an, kind of an interesting idea. Uh, Peter, at one point, is uh, referred to a, a, as the, uh, with the Aramaic word for rock. But look what the church, early church did, which was Greek-speaking. The early Jesus movement was Greek-speaking. And their Bible was not the Tanakh. It was the Septuagint, the first translation out of Hebrew into another language, into Greek. Their Bible was the Septuagint. It's called Septuagint from the Latin word for 70 because the tradition is that um, one of the Ptolemies who was building the great library of Alexandria uh, wanted a book from every nation in it. The entire library was burned by the Arabs in their conquest to use as fuel for their uh, Turkish baths, etc. But he calls scholars from Jerusalem, 70, uh, that came and he put them in different 
rooms, gave them everything they needed and said, I want a translation of this book that you have, this Tanakh that you have, into Greek. And then when they finished, they brought all of them together and examined them, and word for word, they were the same. So we came to the decision, this can only be through Ruach HaKodesh, or this action of the Do'agia Pnevma, which is the Greek term for that. And that Bible then came to have a, uh, as if it were divinely inspired, uh, a significance for the early Jesus movement, early church, as if it were the inspired word of God. That's how they understood it. Now we, we know this is a legend. That's not how the Septuagint came about. But that's not, that's irrelevant. It was the legend and the, 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 the tradition that grew up around it. So the early church, their, their Bible was the uh, Septuagint. Uh, Septuaginta is Latin for uh, the 70. Um, <clears throat> Jesus knew Greek. Consider this. Um, he would have known Greek. Uh, Nazareth was a, uh, a suburb of, um, of a city that was Greek-speaking. And um, in the marketplace, in a negotiate and everything else, they would have used Greek. Carpenter, uh, contracts, everything else would have been Greek. But consider this passage. And Jesus said, who, the, who do men say that I am? There is William Elijah the prophet return. And then, and then Peter comes up and says, you are, the, you are the son of the living God, etc. And Jesus says, you know, yes, and upon this I will build my church. And he changes his name to Petros, meaning the rock upon which I will build my church. Well, consider this. Originally, now that comes down in the New Testament in Greek. But think about it. Petros is the Greek word for rock. It's in petroleum. Rock oil. Jesus could have only said that if he and all of his disciples are around him at that time, we're speaking Greek, we're knowledgeable in Greek. There's no way he could have made that pun upon this rock and we'll build my God. No, he could only have read, made that if he was talking Greek. And so yeah, well of course there's an alternative theory that uh, well, because Peter's referred to as the rock in Aramaic later, but then that very likely is a translation from the Greek word Petros. Yeah, to answer your question, yeah, they were speaking Greek. Or they, um, they, knew the three, they were trilingual, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And of course, like when Jesus goes into the synagogue at Kvarnachum, the uh, city of Capernaum, and reads from, he actually reads the Haftarah, which follows the Torah reading, it's the passage that he reads, um, reads from, he had to know Hebrew. He was very comfortable in the synagogue, the language was Hebrew. But then the everyday family language was uh, Aramaic. Let's go one step further in answering your question. Okay, now you know that Greek, well maybe not, but let me tell you, Greek doesn't have the sound sh, doesn't have sh, it only has s as in sigma, okay? <coughs> Greek and Latin both add an S at the end of a noun in the masculine to show that it's a, to show that it's a subject, it's the doer of the action, okay? That's an example is cactus, 
and the plural is cacti or cacti, okay. Cactus with the S or is it, it, it's a subject uh, originally, okay. The Hebrew word for, you can look it up in the dictionary today, for rescue is Yeshua, okay. Christians would love to know that that, that name means rescue. It fits in li- that fits in nicely with their theology. At least they got that right. But consider this: there's no sh in Greek, therefore it's going to be a, an s. And consider this: already in um, Eastern uh, Semitic, as an Assyrian or uh, Babylonian, it came out originally Assyrian. Um, the guttural letters were dropped. There are letters in Hebrew alphabet that don't exist in English or Spanish. Let's say, for example, I'm going to say an aleph, and then I'm going to say an ayin, and you'll hear the difference. If I say ah-ah, and the air stops, ah-ah, a consonant stops the flow of air. So aleph is a consonant, ah-ah, and the letter ayin is a consonant. But listen to the difference. Ah, 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 ah. That, that growling throat letter is a consonant. It's ein. It also happens with the letter he. So we get aha and aha. It's not it's two different. So Aramaic, I mean, originally Assyrian, and then it transferred to Babylonian. <coughs> And the, uh, when the Chaldeans conquered uh, Babylon, that transferred over to Aramaic. And of the different dialects of Aramaic, even into Galilean Aramaic. So that the name, or so that the noun, Yeshua, the, uh, you can hear me saying it, Yeshua, okay, would have been pronounced without the guttural. You just have Yeshua. And you add an S from the Greek subject, and you get an S on the name of it, Yeshus. But Greek doesn't have a sh. All you're going to have is Yeshus. So that's where the name comes from. It's because of, um, yeah. But, uh, okay. You there. also have the uh, word Yasa. Yasa. Uh, okay. to yeah. Salvation yeah. Savior. Yeah. Uh, I explain that to him, Yasa. No, you do. You with your background, you explain it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember all the definitions for Yasa. It kind of translates over just like they're talking about to, uh, to salvation for a 